Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 59 of the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV podcast network. Today, we take a stroll down memory lane with one of my fellow service members, Dr. Katie Kopp, as we talk about what it is like providing mental health in a combat zone. Dr. Kopp and I were deployed together in RC East Afghanistan in 2009-2010. As a psychologist, she has two combat deployments and a unique perspective on taking care of her soldiers, herself, and starting to set the stage on active duty for veterans to get their headspace and timing set right after they leave the service. I mean, in some ways, I feel like the military gets a bad rap for like all the stigma about behavioral health. But it's not like, you know, at the average dinner party, people are going to be disclosing that... Like, oh, yeah, I just recently started therapy. I'm really struggling with some anxiety. Like, you know what I mean? People still tend to kind of hide that stuff. But I think one of the things that really changed over the course of time that I've been working with the Army is the expectation, at least when bad things happen, like everybody's on board with like, let's make sure we get, you know, somebody in here to talk to these guys. Um, And I don't know if they think we've got a magic wand and, you know, showing up immediately after a traumatic event is going to fix something. Um, but I felt like what I could do more than anything else is start to lay the foundation that like, this is stuff you have to talk about. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veterans, service members, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey folks, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, really appreciate you taking the time to to listen and learn about veteran mental health. Uh, you know, as we're always trying to do, we're trying to change the way that we veterans, that um, mental health providers, that the community thinks and talks about veteran mental health. Uh, I am, you know, I often say that I'm really excited for my guests, but I am really excited for my guests today uh, because um, this, is, uh, this is someone with whom I have personal history, so we're digging back into the Sergeant France archives a little bit. Um, you know, I've had uh, uh, some of my battle buddies on the show before, uh, Brian Alexander, 
uh, sharing uh, his story about the uh, story behind the stripes. Uh, but uh, but my guest today um, and is no longer Captain Katie Cop, although she will always uh, be that in my mind. Um, so uh, Katie Cop and I were stationed together in Afghanistan in 2009, 2010, uh, and uh, and sort of traveled the same roads together. So uh, Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about all this. No, I appreciate you. Um, I appreciated you then. I appreciate you now kind of coming on the show uh, and talking. Um, you know, I, I think so you were um, you were in our battalion. So we were we were in the same battalion. You were in I was in Alpha Company. You were in Charlie Company, but you were the brigade psychologist. Yeah. So they did some some weird stuff with those medical assets where we kind of belong to one company in the support battalion, but really <clears throat> we're there to work with everybody in the brigade. So yeah. And at, at that, that first deployment, uh, my first deployment that we went on together, um, I was the only mental health asset <laughs> for the brigade at that time. I did another deployment with that brigade and, and we had another provider on that second rotation, which was very, very helpful. <laughs> Yeah, and so, um, well, I guess before we get into old home week, how about you tell everybody a little <laughs> bit about yourself um, and and sort of uh, um, and sort of the bio stuff. Sure. So um, I had definitely had a different path into the army, I think, than a lot of other people do. I was already, I had my bachelor's degree. Uh, I was finishing up my master's degree. Um, and there had been a couple people in the classes ahead of me, um, at my program, I went to the Rosemead school of psychology in Southern California. And there were some people who had done this health professional scholarship program where the army paid for their last couple of years in the program. And then you commission and do your internship at an army site and then do a couple of years on active duty. And so, that's what I ended up doing. Um, had to kind of <laughs> make some lifestyle changes to get ready to join the army. Um, just improve my fitness and all that kind of stuff a little bit and ended up commissioning basically about the same time that I got my master's degree. And then essentially my first two years in the army, I never wore a uniform, never did anything with the army, um, had a reserve commission and, and they just paid for school. And then and I went to my officer basic course um, in August of 2007 and then went to Madigan Army Medical Center for my internship and so did a year up there. Um, and then from there, it went real fast. Like because of the timing of our internship, we wrapped up in about November of that year and the university only post degrees, you know, every couple of like uh, December, May and August. So my degree posted in December um, my packet went to my licensing board in the state of Alabama, where I had never been. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was licensed the first week of January and I reported to the brigade in that February of 2009. So I went from being like an intern where you can't speak to a patient without <laughs> somebody, you know, supervising that signing off on it to being the only provider for a brigade of almost 4,000 soldiers in a couple of months. And then four months later, we deployed to Afghanistan. I was going to so say pretty because, rapid. Right. We, that was even after. So um, for, for listeners, as you're eavesdropping here, this is going to be very much like an eavesdropping conversation, but we were mm -hmm. uh, in NTC fourth brigade, fourth ID. We were in uh, JRTC, sorry, January, February of that year. So you came 
right at the end of our uh, JRTC. And then we were in Afghanistan in June and July. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I don't know how, ob- I know it was obvious to some people for sure, uh, that I was very, very green <laughs> because, you know, during your first year in the army in a medical center, I mean, you're, you're practically still a civilian, you know, I just went to the hospital every day. So I wore a uniform, but I did no soldiering tasks. Um, the first time I touched a rifle was to try to qualify to be able to go to Afghanistan. (laughs) Like I felt so bad for my first company commander, just like getting this ridiculous. And I was, but I was a captain. Right. And so people think that, captains have been in the army for a while and know what they're doing. And that was definitely not the case with me. So it was, it was kind of funny in retrospect. And I don't think I did anything too terribly tragically wrong in those first couple of months, but it was definitely a pretty steep learning curve for me. Um, I mean, you know, cause even, even figuring out like, Oh, companies and battalions and brigades, like mm-hmm. just like learning how to speak army. Like again, even after that first year, I definitely had picked up on some of it, but there was a lot of it that I did not know. <laughs> and and you had the um, interesting situation of coming into a brigade that had been, it, it was pretty high op tempo. We had just came off of a 15-month tour uh, in Baghdad, um, which was very kinetic, which was uh, heavy losses, that the brigade um, had then this was the brigade that went from Korea to Ramadi to Fort Carson to Baghdad to Fort Carson. I mean, this you were coming into a brigade that was bruised and bloodied and snot run. I mean, it was it, it wasn't a showpiece brigade. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Not at all, and had been like in the news for um, having a streak of criminal behavior between yes. deployments. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really a lot of people highlighting that, like, these soldiers are not getting the mental health, health care that they need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's no, like, yeah. All right. Well, here I am. <laughs> well, I mean, and so, and, and it's, it, again, um, you know, for maybe the listener's edification, but, uh, there's, uh, there's the book Lethal Warriors by David Phillips. Um, and, and we did that summer of 2008, 2009, the, the high up tempo and the, um, the lack of resources were really taking a toll on the, the mental health, the psychological health. And, and I think it drove a lot of what Fort Carson did, you know, later on down the line. Uh, but you were just coming in to a brigade that had a pretty, I mean, it was a great brigade. I loved it, but it, it had a certain level of reputation. So what was it like for you to come into that? Um, and then they say, here you go, doc. Yeah, you know, the biggest <clears throat> pressures in, in getting to the brigade, especially when I did, like you said, the training rotation was already complete. Um, it was all about, you know, SRP and deployability. And they're just, you know, now we have this embedded behavioral health model in the Army, and it works really, really well. And at the time, they were just standing up the first team in the Army. Right. I was at Fort Carson, and I was part of it. But, like, all these soldiers had been seen by all these other providers. And, like, just people weren't in the habit of making decisions about deployability and retainability at every encounter. And now that's the standard because we know that soldiers could get called up any time. But then it just still wasn't – even though we'd been at war for a while, it just wasn't really the standard. So a lot of my job was like calling other providers and be like, 
hey, you've seen the soldier for eight months. Can they get on a plane in two months? You know, and then it, for a little while, I kind of had this bad reputation of like Captain Cops trying to deploy everybody. And I was like, no, I just want you to decide <laughs> if your soldier's deployable. So, um, you know, it's just that that really tough period of establishing rapport with the leaders, um, you know, the company commanders, even the battalion commander. Um, I think very highly of the brigade commander we had at the time, who's back again as our commanding general at Fort Carson right now. But um, and he taught me a lot, too, mm-hmm. <laughs> about learning how to soldier. And I might have got a knife hand or two along the way because, you know, I made some mistakes. But so it was just really hard to, to figure out that balance of like, OK, you've got to be able to make these assessments and calculate these risks of this person has been in treatment or this person's newly on medication, but I think they can deploy and we can try to support them while they're in Afghanistan without really knowing like what we were falling in on and right. what kind of medical support we were going to have downrange. And I, I mean, you know, you just don't know, I think until you can get on the ground there, like <clears throat> what your battlefield circulation rotation is going to be, how often can you realistically see people, <laughs> you know, and stuff that I didn't figure out until we got there. Like, okay, if you're in the BSB and your home is at, you know, in Jalalabad, I can see you almost weekly. If you're, you know, way up there in Kunar province where they will only fly during low loom, then I probably can't get to you that often. And, and we just didn't have that information at the time we were trying to make these decisions about deployability. Yeah. And, and that's the, again, like you said, even not knowing what we were going in on, um, the, uh, Again, for listeners who may have heard, you know, my own personal story, we were deployed in, in RC East um, into KL, so the northern part of um, uh, RC East, which is a uh, next to uh, Helmand Province, the most kinetic um, uh, terrain. Korangal, Kunar, of course, um, you know, we've seen the movie Restrepo, that was in our area of operations. Um, you know, of course, uh, Keating happened while you and I were there and you were involved with, uh, with the aftermath of that. And, and so this is, we, 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 we didn't go to Disneyland. It was, um, it was during the surge. It was, it, but it was significantly kinetic. Um, and, and so what was it like for a, a psychologist to go into that providing mental health directly on the battlefield? Um, you know, I think there's kind of the personal and professional side of that. So again, personally, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, um, and stuff like going, you know, with your crew on convoys. (laughs) And, um, I really just kind of took the approach of like, these people do this job every day. And so (laughs) I'm just going to go along for the ride. Um, and you know, we kind of laugh because like I was assigned, um, you know, an M9 and an M4. And my company commander was like, well, if you're going outside the wire, like you have to have your M4. And I was like, Chad, like if I end up shooting my <laughs> M4, like we are in a very bad situation, <laughs> you know, cause obviously I'm riding in vehicles with 50 cals and Mark 19s and stuff. I'm like, if you're counting on your psychologist to defend your convoy, you're really in trouble. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I got to know, I had to figure out, like, how do you fly around Afghanistan? And we had some civilian Canadian aircraft that were actually one of my primary modes of transportation. And then, 
you know, catching Blackhawk flights and like I said, convoys. Um, so just, you know, there's the kind of the logistics, like how do you get around an AO that is very kinetic where sometimes travel is limited because, because of flights or because, you know, if you land on this fob, you're going to get shot at. So we only land, you know, like I said, at certain parts of the Illum cycle and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then professionally, you know, really just trying to figure out, because people didn't want to leave ever, like pretty much, like I think because things were so kinetic, um, and I feel like there might be misunderstanding about this if you're just a civilian, like looking in, like, oh, well, that sounds really bad. Like there was a lot of people dying. Probably everybody wanted to get out of there. No, absolutely not. No, definitely not the case. And, and, and I've, I've written about it before, but it was both the best of times of my life and, of mm-hmm. course, the worst of times. Um, but, uh, but I've had this conversation a couple of times that if somebody said, if you could close your eyes and go anywhere in the world, where would you go? And for me, it would be going back to Afghanistan. I mean, it's, it's, it's that much of a love-hate relationship, but you're absolutely right. Nobody wanted to be the one to get sit on a chopper and go back to you know, uh, uh, Jalalabad even much less, you know, farther back. Right. And I have, you know, I guess the advantage of going back again, then two years later when things were less kinetic and we had more problems when people wanting to leave because they didn't feel like what they were doing was important or they didn't think the mission was that big of a deal. Whereas when we were there, oh, 2010, like, it was so kinetic and things were so intense, um, that people really felt like, not only do, you know, do I make a difference in what I do, but if I leave, like my team is short and and it's going to put everybody in a bind. And so, um, you know, like I said, everybody's committed to staying. So then you see people struggling (laughs) potentially. Um, and then you have to make the decision, like, would it be worse for them to stay and potentially, have more trauma, which is probably going to happen because there's just a lot going on, um, especially at some of these smaller um, fobs and cops. You know, is it better for them to stay and potentially face more trauma or is it better for them to go and get away? And a lot of times the answer was staying. Um, and again, you know, it's just hard calls to make and and probably harder conversations to try to have with like, other mental health professionals who've never been there, (laughs) you know, and there's a quote and I I should have looked at it because it it comes back to me a lot, but it's something like a a ship in Harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for, you know? And I, Mm -hmm. and I think that way about, you know, infantrymen and combat arms guys and, and support people too, you know, but like, this is what people signed up to do. And, you know, especially, like I said, you come to 4th Brigade, 4th Infantry Division, you know, they were deploying every other year for like seven years there. And so you came to that unit, you know what you were getting yourself into. And we trained for it and we executed, you know. And and that's exactly, um, you know, I know all kind of guys, you know, don't take me out of the game, coach. I'm, I'm not, you know, what is it? I'm not injured, hurt, I'm injured or whatever it mm-hmm. is, right? Um, yeah. But that was something that... Um, always struck me personally um as uh, as seeing you is you were like all over the place it was like you know where in the world is Carl- carmen san diego like we would pull into <laughs> Pertle king and we're like what's what's 
what's Captain Cop doing here? You know, and you're in some <laughs> obscure remote outpost that I'm like, how did you get here? You know, and but it's, but you mm -hmm. were always, you know, you, and again, where, where I was, um, especially with the, the Cav Squadron, um, you will always seem to be out at the smallest cops and forward operating bases. Um, you didn't just sit back at the, the main fob waiting for people to fly and shuttle into you. Uh, I saw that yeah. that made of a difference. Did, did you sense that was a, a, a difference maker? I think so. Um, I think it helped during the rotation, and it actually helped a lot after I got back. Because, um, you know, a lot of these guys stuck around in the unit. Like mm -hmm. I said, I stayed in the brigade for a total of five years. Um, I actually have a, a patient right now um, who I saw – you know, in 2009 in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and he's moved on in a lot of different ways, um, in his career. And when he came back to Fort Carson and needed, um, a therapist and somebody knew that I was still around. And so they were like, you gotta go see Katie cop, you know? And it's just like that kind of rapport there. Cause they're like, Oh yeah, we saw you at Bostick. We saw you at Pertle King. <laughs> like actually, basically broke my nose at Pertle King just I by wasn't, tripping. Like, I wasn't going to bring it up. Yeah. I wasn't going to. No, gonna, it's I didn't totally wanna, fine. But, yeah, it was, <laughs> it, that was something that did happen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, don't, I still don't think anybody thought I was some kind of, like, battle-hardened <laughs> whatever. There's no no misconceptions about that. <laughs> no, but but the idea of, um, and, you know, and, and we all saw it, it would have been very easy for someone of, uh, of your rank or, or even your position um, to just sit back on the camp and wait for, you know, the flies to come home rather than get out and, and do what you did and get down literally knee deep in the mud in many of the cases and sit there and go to where the soldier needed you. Uh, and, and I think, and again, I know it made a difference for me and my guys. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think stuff too, like, like I went to Fortress one day and they were going to go shoot 240s outside, like we did like outside the wire. Like we just walked across the street and they're like, cause you know, it's Afghanistan. They're like, you can mm -hmm. shoot the side of this mountain. We're like, okay, cool. Like doc, do you want to go? I was like, yes. Like, <laughs> cause that's, you know, fun for me to do something different. And then they see that like, yeah, like, I mean, it was, you know, it was a, a PFC like teaching me how to shoot this weapon. Cause I don't know anything, even if I outrank him. You know, so like, I think that kind of stuff just helped get in with people, let them know that, you know, I wasn't just going to sit in the office and, I mean, especially in Afghanistan, it's not like you have a couch or, right. <laughs> you know, any of those stereotypes about what therapy is going to look like. But then, and again, and, and we've alluded to it, um, there were some very significant events um, mm -hmm. that occurred during that first deployment, of course. Um, ours, uh, and I've spoken on the, the show about this before, where we started, we lost Sergeant Wolf and, and Josh Wolf, her husband, uh, mm -hmm. and everything else. But of course, Cop Keating um, happened. And, and you know, and, and maybe not getting to specifics, but if we ever needed a mental health professional, it was that tour. Yeah, absolutely. And we were lucky to have a lot of really good chaplains that rotation too. Um, you know, and I mean, 
chaplains are just like mental health professionals. Some really good ones out there. <laughs> and there's some I wouldn't, wouldn't talk to myself and wouldn't send anybody else to, you know, but we had a really great bunch, um, that rotation. So, um, yeah, we were, we were busy. I mean, some, yeah. So, I mean, some, some mass cows, you know, where we lost a bunch of people all at once, like cop Keating, we had four Marines killed the month before cop Keating on a single day. And, so some really big events, kind of newsworthy type of stuff. Um, but the, you know, those individual losses too, it's like, like you said, Sergeant Wolf, the first, I mean, I remember the FSC in 212 mm-hmm. losing a guy on a convoy and that one, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know, I want to name drop, but there's definitely names that are like emblazoned on my mind, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, of situations. And, and cause some of those, you know, were my learning experiences too. Like I'm walking into the room as the expert, <laughs> you know, to kind of debrief this platoon or whatever. But the first debrief, I think I remember doing the, the STB lost an MP and, it, you know, just totally unexpected. We're like, we're ready for the infantry battalions to take heavy losses. You know, we had no idea the Cav squad was going to take as many losses as it did, but like, we were ready for that. And then all of a sudden the STB loses a guy. And so, you know, that was, yeah, my first, first kind of group debrief was to go sit with that platoon. And, um, I mean, I just, I have quotes <laughs> from that meeting that are still just like stuck with me. Cause like I said, I was learning, you know, and, and I'm a pretty emotional person. And I remember being worried about like, am I going to be able to, you know, keep my shit together? <laughs> Cause mm-hmm. it's probably not good if your psychologist breaks down. Um, <laughs> You know, somebody so, get a doc for the doc. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, definitely have my moments. I don't think I did anything in a group debrief, but you know, luckily I had colleagues to, to talk with afterwards and, and have my safe spaces too, you know? No. And I agree with, uh, in, in what you had said earlier about the, uh, the chaplains, um, uh, chaplain ball, uh, chaplain Brown and chaplain weather. So I actually had, uh, Chaplain Weathers' wife, Corey Weathers, who is also a, uh, a a mental health professional, she was on the show a while back, and Corey actually was able to uh, travel to Afghanistan uh, and visit Jalalabad. Um, but mm-hmm. but yes, and and it was a, a great thing that there were a lot of people that were very capable to handle the the psychological stress that we were under while we were there. Uh, and, yeah. and I, and I think that was very good and, and it did appear was a, a very good team. And then, so yeah. you said you came back and what was the, the aftermath having been through, uh, the deployment with these soldiers. And then of course we go through SRP and everybody keeps their mouth shut and, <laughs> and I've got a, so, so I don't think I've told this story on the show before. Um, but this is after that, um, uh, after that deployment, I was going through post, um, redeployment processing and they had put us up on the third floor here at Carson of course but it was it was something like the MMPI it was something like 200 something question um uh uh you know psychological eval right and and Mm -hmm. some of us were pulled out and said hey you have to go take this and I'm a platoon sergeant I'm already getting ready to take over the company sergeant majors kind of told me that's what's happening uh, and, uh, and I didn't have time for this. And I said, you know what, I'm going to answer this thing correctly. I'm not going to BS it. I'm going to not doing what soldiers normally do when they get out of SRP. Uh, so I go ahead and answer it as accurately as possible. So then I wait in the provider line and I go down and they get the little printout. And this is the standard mm-hmm. provider at SRP. 
and they said, well, Sergeant, um, uh, you know, it looks like there's some concerns here. You seem pretty angry. <laughs> and I said, well, I just got back from Afghanistan and I'm about to take over a company. Anger is pretty much what I do. Right. You know, so that's sort mm -hmm. of the kind of thing. And then they were like, well, do you want to go see behavioral health? I'm like, do I need to? Is it, you know, they were like, well, if this number was a little lower and this number was a little higher, I'd be forced to tell you to, that you have to go see mental health. <laughs> and I said, okay. I said, what does that mm -hmm. mean? You know, I said, what is, interpret that for me. They said, oh, we don't know. If this number is a little lower and this number is a little higher and, and they were like, are you sure? I said, no, I don't want to go see behavioral health. <laughs> just, just give me my stamp and get out of here. And so that was, that was my experience. And so, and, and that was probably typical or even more, um, you know, guys, that we just didn't talk about it because we knew yeah. the brigade was redeploying. So what was it like kind of navigating well, through that? Yeah. Let me tell you a funny story where it wasn't, I don't think it was the first SRP, but then, you know, they made us do the, PDHRAs, like the reassessment, I forget, 90 or 120 days or something after we get back. And I got flagged to go, like, because, you know, you answer the questions and you see the PA. And then if the PA sees whatever, then they send you over to the behavioral health clinic <clears throat> or to the SRP behavioral health. And I feel like, I don't remember what I said. I feel like it was pretty benign. Like something about like, being tired or, you know, like, <laughs> like feeling exhausted or something. And so she was like, well, I, you know, I have to send you over. And I, I didn't like lose it, but I was like, so pissed. And I was like, okay, all I'm doing is convincing her that I do need to go over there. <laughs> so then they did send me, you know, the, the next door, right. They had that little smaller building that was yeah. the, where the behavioral health providers were. And one of the social workers like grabbed me right away because it's a pretty long line, right? And and she saw, but they like populate the list in the medical records system. <laughs> so she saw my name and she was like, "What the heck?" Because I had like moved in to that building, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Pre-deployment and redeployment because I was screening so many soldiers. And so she's like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "I don't know." She wouldn't clear me, and it was so funny. I was just like, "Oh man," because you know you really can't fight it that hard, or you do look like. Right. You really that, need that it. You're, in, you're where you're supposed to be. Yeah. And I, I definitely went to therapy after that deployment, but like, I'm, you know, like I got a referral to go off post because like when you work in the behavioral health clinic, you don't see one of your coworkers, like, right. mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but I'm a strong proponent of therapy. So I don't want to make it seem like I fought that because I don't believe in it. Like I definitely do, but I just wasn't going to see people that I knew and worked with every single day. <laughs> so, um, I'm trying to think though for the unit as a whole, you know, it just kind of comes and goes. I think for a lot of people at redeployment, there's, you know, honeymoon period and you're happy to be alive for the most part, hopefully. Um, and you're happy to see your family. Um, and then after a couple of months, maybe you're less happy to see your family and maybe you're not happy to be alive. Uh, you know, we had, a completed suicide within a couple of months after that deployment. Mm -hmm. yep. Um, so, you know, that, I mean, I don't know, it happens unfortunately too often. Um, and, and sometimes it has to do with the deployment stuff and most often it doesn't, it's drinking and relationship problems in every completed suicide that I've been, you know, either directly or tangentially associated with, like it, those are the two <laughs> most common factors. 
Um, but yeah, so, I mean, there was definitely, you know, we had the embedded team at that point. So we had at least one provider per battalion. And that was the point where I took 212. Um, I had spent a lot of time with them. Uh, well, I guess not as much time with them, that deployment, um, because they had an Air Force asset that kind of moved into their AO because their AO was so difficult to navigate logistically. So they had somebody there really just covering their three or four locations. But after oh, see, they got back, that's who I took. So yeah, I spent I a didn't, lot of time with this. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they actually had – and so they were up in the, the Korangal. We were in the Kunar, and they were up in the Korangal, but they actually had somebody uh, there up in the valley with them. Yeah, they had um, – I'm trying to remember at what point that happened, but at some point in our rotation, they moved an Air Force social worker up to Fob Blessing. Um, and so he really just covered, it would have been like Blessing, Michigan. I'm trying to remember what the other one was on that route between ABAD and Blessing. There was another small cop there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Able Maine, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. And- yeah. And then uh, until they closed Korangal, uh, he was going up there too. So, so because I just couldn't, we couldn't get there from Jaff. Like I said, the flights were so limited. And so because he was at Blessing, he could travel with like the battalion commander and all of that. Um, but yeah, so when they got back, uh, you know, and I really, I mean, I, I stayed in 704 my entire five years in the brigade in the, in the BSB, but I really felt adopted <laughs> by 212. Um, spent a ton of time with them. They ended up getting a very savvy battalion commander who was very supportive of behavioral health and tried to stay ahead of the curve on a lot of stuff. And, you know, the, the attitudes of leaders <laughs> towards behavioral health cannot be like overstated how valuable that is. Um, their attitude towards me, because if they act like the providers are just there to, you know, sabotage readiness um, that's, that's, that attitude is going to trickle down to at least the company commander level, if not to the soldiers themselves. And again, if the company commanders don't trust us, you know, then they will try to maybe handle things internally or, Oh, just have him see whoever, you know, just have him take a weekend off and then we'll see how he's doing kind of thing. And it's like, man, like Rub you just let us get ahead it. of this, <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, and then two twelve, even more so than, than the entire brigade was really, um, you know, they, they had the hardest of the hardest in many ways, um, in the, the surge, um, in Baghdad in the 15 month, they were in, um, uh, the, um, they were in the market, uh, there South of the river, uh, sort of all, but I mean, they, they had the brunt, a lot of the brunt of what, um, uh, what was going on in the Dora market. And they had a lot of casualties in that 15 month surge, there were a lot of the source of sort of the disruption. They were also, um, you know, arguably, yes, between the Korangal and what um, the uh, what the Cav Squadron was going through in the Upper Kunar. Uh, but but they had been through some pretty hairy experiences. And a lot of those soldiers had been in the same unit throughout all three of the deployments or four of the deployments, even going back to Ramadi in 0405. Yeah, there was a lot of people with a lot of longevity. I mean, some people like come in, you know, their first duty station and then they leave as like an E6 or 7. It's like, oh my gosh, like how do you spend that much time in one unit, you know? But yeah, so so they'd had quite a history. And um, I mean, it just, 
by the time we got back, like I said, they, I don't remember if I was like given my choice of it, you know, but there was a lot of providers who were set up to, to help support the brigade. Um, and I, I probably chose, I mean, it was either going to be 212 or 361 because of the level of losses that rotation. And 112 also had it really rough, but they were detached from us right. that, mm-hmm. that deployment. They were down south. So I just didn't feel as connected to them. I didn't know the commanders as well. And so, yeah, I mean, and then it was just like, I just saw so many patients. <laughs> it was just, um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, seven a day was was easily an average, you know, which probably, you know, you get like a primary care doc or somebody and they're like seven patients. Are you kidding me? Cause they might see 30 a day or something, but I'm like, we're trying to spend, you know, 45, 50 minutes with people and, and it's intense work. And so it's hard to just cram them all in back to back to back, you know? Yeah. For, for a mental health professional, a, a, a manageable load is 30 to 35 people you know, and you were seeing 40, 45 plus. And, and you know, I mean, and again, as you said before, and you alluded to, um, you know, uh, physician heal thyself, doc, you know, therapy is necessary for therapists. We carry, you know, especially the weight of our own experiences, but then the load of what we, um, what we experience through um, the, the clients. Um, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, that is a pretty heavy, um, a pretty heavy op-tempo uh, in the office, but also it almost encourages me because veterans or soldiers at that point were actually seeking services. They weren't shying away from the therapist office, um, mm-hmm. like sort of the, the stigma would have, would make us think. Right. And I mean, I would like to think that my visibility during that deployment helped with that. Um, and you know, and, and the case is always that we also get brand new soldiers or soldiers who've never deployed who are coming into behavioral health and people have attitudes about that sometimes, but everybody's got a story (laughs) and you don't know what their story might be before they ever enlisted. So I try not to get too harsh on that. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, we'd also had people who had, you know, been in the army eight years and had four, 12 months deployments or something. You're like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Like you've been busy, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, just, busy, busy across the board, really, from for all the battalions. Um, and then still trying to do, you know, the, the training and soldier stuff that I was supposed to do. Um, and, yeah, I think one of the benefits of, like, how we talked about that, I got to the unit, <clears throat> you know, pretty late in the, in the game as far as the training cycle. I didn't really know anybody. So none of those losses were personal for me, um, mm. which was different from the second deployment I went on. Mm. Cause at that point I'd been in the unit right. four years. And so it wasn't just like, well, I mean, but, you know, all that, that, you know, that's tragic or you hear about their families or, you know, like with Sergeant Wolf and her husband being in the brigade as well. Like that's just like heartbreaking, you know, but it still wasn't personal. Right. And then the second time I went, there were some personal losses where it's like, man, like I just saw that guy. Like I just talked to you him. Know? Yeah. You know? And, and I, I guess I can see that too, because I remember the first loss um, and it was, it was a Cav loss, but I knew Jay Fabrizi uh, and Jay, mm-hmm. it was very early in the deployment. I think it might've been one of the first uh, casualties, but I knew Jay from, from when we were deployed in, in, uh, in Iraq, you know, so Jay was, you know, he was still in three, six, one then. And, and Jay and I, both these seven sort of peer to peer kind of thing. And so, yes, it was, there were a lot of personal losses uh, during that deployment for me, but I could see it's not that it didn't affect you. It's just that you didn't know them. Exactly. Um, and then it, it became more personal on that second deployment. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and, uh, you know, again, with both of them, so we had air force assets, um, that were attached to us. So basically, I mean, not attached to the unit, whatever, uh, in official <laughs> sense, but worked in our locations, supported me personally and supported the unit as well in providing services. So we had that both times. Um, but then the second time too, you know, we had another, uh, a social worker who was assigned to 4th Brigade. And so, and also in the BSB with me. And so he actually stayed in Jalalabad. I pushed out, lived at another place for a variety of reasons, but it was better for me to be away from the flagpole a little bit, um, that second deployment. So I pushed out and, um, but he was there for me big time. Um, you know, our brigade sergeant major was killed and that was Mm -hmm. really hard for me personally. And I mean, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, like we're going to do our debriefs with the people who need it. And then I'm going to go back in our office and then I'm going to talk to JP and I'm going to like cry (laughs) for like an hour, (laughs) you know? Uh, and I definitely remember that memorial ceremony was the worst one I've ever been to, um, uh, you know, so, so that kind of stuff happens too. But like I said, it was, that second deployment was just, it was, we had, we lost a lot less people, which was great. Uh, but it was hard, a lot harder in other ways. Right. And it was a lot more impactful. I uh, did not go on that deployment. I had actually, uh, <laughs> again, talk about brightness, but I waived my dwell time uh, in order to get an assignment. <laughs> and I was actually back in Afghanistan eight months after, nine months after uh, we redeployed. So after leaving the, you know, I had my company and then, um, and then that, and so I was, I was on a rotational deployment, but then I was back, uh, when Sergeant Major Griffin was killed and I was in 10th group and, and, and even for me still knowing again, a lot of the people, but there was sort of that I'm here, they're there, um, in a, in a, a kind of helplessness that I couldn't do anything. Not, not that anybody could have done anything, you know, even being right there. Um, but mm-hmm. there, that's sort of the psychological weight that we have, especially in the high op tempo. Um, did, did you see a lot of that kind of thing with the soldiers you were working with? I, I wish I was over there. I wish that, um, you know, I, I wish I could do something. But it, it, like feelings of helplessness and and uh, simply can't do anything. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think anytime you're not directly in the action, you know, I think there was times where like, in Jalalabad, like in the brigade talk, walk, watching ticks unfold, like, oh man, we, you know, <laughs> we got to get people there. I got to get there. I, I, need, I need to be there tomorrow or whatever. And then times when you're in Colorado and, you know, hearing about stuff that happens in Afghanistan, you're like, oh man, you know? And then, yeah, especially as you transition out of a unit and then still watching them, you know, cause like I said, I did the two um, deployments with them and then I got out after that deployment and then they went again like the next year (laughs) and and i was still around you know i'm still in colorado springs i'm still hearing about this stuff and it's yeah i think there's it's not like it's not fomo you're not like oh man i wish i was in the action it's just like could could i do anything you know what what could be different if i was there or if i was involved or i don't know (laughs) right i mean and there's and those are sort of the rabbit trails we need to catch ourselves to keep ourselves from going down because you know, it's it's not you know regardless of 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 what coulda shoulda woulda, it's just it's it's not uh, it's not even possible. Yeah, and you know, I mean, so you you obviously did a, f- a full career and you retired, and and I didn't. You know, I did six years, and I got out. And there's still, I mean, I could fall into thinking traps on that too. You know, like mm-hmm. did I do enough? <laughs> was was it worthy service? You know, and and what would happen if I was still in? And and that's not a good fit for me. Like. 
honestly, I was never a great soldier. <laughs> I think I was a good psychologist. I think I was good at my job. Um, but, and that, that, you know, caused other problems for me. <laughs> so, so I think, I think it's good that I am where I am and I started a family and all those kind of things. So I was not going to be in the right mindset to continue to deploy every other year. Um, which is potentially what would have happened had I stayed in, but, um, well, and, yeah. And, you I, know. and I think that's a big thing is everybody's like, well, I didn't do, you know, and, and everybody compares, you know, I didn't do what you did or whatever. But, um, the fact is, is, uh, you know, first half of my career was peacetime army. You know, I had a deployment to Bosnia, but it wasn't, you know, um, you know, the second half of my career was where all my deployments happened because I had enlisted in 92 and, you know, uh, somebody who joined um, and spent 10 years, especially where we're at now, they saw more action in those 10 years than I did kind of spread over the 20 years. I mean, it was the the the, the trauma, let's say, or just the, the kinetic nature. Uh, one of my guys, and, and, um, and I tell this story often, but he was, he was in on the, um, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan. So he's with 10th Mountain when they first went into Afghanistan in 2001. Uh, then he went to third ID. He was with us in, um, no, he was in on the invasion of third ID in Iraq in 03. Then he was with us in 06, 07 during the surge in Iraq. And then he was with us in Afghanistan. And so like the height of all of these particular conflicts, he was there for it in 10 years. And he, and at mm -hmm. the end of it, he was like, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. lost the marriage. I mean, and you did, you lived more in those 10 years, that decade, he, he was at war for a decade. He was, and I, you know, I tell him this, he was at the turning point of history, not to be melodramatic, but those are very significant things that he's gone through and he was packed into 10 years. And it's like, you can't, you know, you can't regret what you did because the service was service. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm interested to hear how maybe, um, attitudes towards mental health have changed since when you were coming in, um, where you said the beginning of, of 09, no, 08. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I came on active yeah. duty in 07, but I got to the brigade yeah. in 09. Yeah. So, so we're going on 10 years, um, you know, nine years now of, of this, where they just started the active duty embedded behavioral health. And, and you kind of alluded to it, the attitudes of commanders at that point, ha have you seen it shift over these past 10 years? Yeah, um, I think there's less like mystery about it all. I don't, you know, like I don't know that behavioral health has some aura around it <laughs> like it used to maybe. Like people are like, I don't know what they do over there, but I know you don't want to go. Like I don't think that's the case. Um, I mean, there's still a big push for medical readiness. And so there's still concerns like, are you going to profile everybody? And um, I, I think it just takes the team coming together, you know, when you get new providers, like just getting them trained up really quickly to know, like, this is like, our mission is to keep people in the fight, which doesn't mean we won't take necessary actions to protect them when we need to. But like always keeping in mind, like the army is half of the client, you know, in addition to the patient sitting in front of you. So I, I mean, I think it's still, there's pockets of stigma. I think the, the main challenge I see right now is in our, um, our new NCOs, for whatever reason, I think like E5s <laughs> will, will tend to be, I don't want to say like my enemy, but they're the ones most likely to tell a soldier, like, you don't want to go over there, you know, whereas right. 
the guys who've been around a long time, who've been through the years of heavy war, you know, they're at that 14, 15 years time in service. Um, the E6s and E7s, they're a lot more usually willing to support us and being like, no, get yourself taken care of, you know, check, not, not just check the box, but like do that, like do the preventative maintenance, <laughs> like get over yeah. there and talk to them um, and get it knocked out. And, and so, you know, with the embedded model, like we go to command high risk meetings, like, you know, the commanders all, all know how to get a hold of me <laughs> like anytime they need to. So we just try to be available where, you know, I'm like, I'm, a, I'm just across the street. Like if you need to come see me, you know, walk over at lunchtime and we can sit down and talk about what's going on or, you know what I mean? So that makes it easier. <clears throat> and, and I think that does help, of course, getting it close to, you know, it's in, in, you know, we hear this, you know, um, uh, treat as far forward as you possibly can and, and things yep. like that. It's, it's interesting that you say that first line leader, um, you know, that, that direct peer almost, uh, um, leader, uh, you know, I always used to say that I said the Sergeant major or the first sergeant can walk up and down the hallway at SRP saying, make sure you say something, make sure you say something, you know, don't you, like you said, do prevent, even if they're very sincere, if that PFC is sitting next to their E5 that they've just deployed with for a year, that E5 is going to say, you better not say anything. They're more likely to listen <laughs> to that, that very constant peer that they have daily contact with than some mm-hmm. commander or first sergeant. So I, I see that same sense here in the community of, mm-hmm. you know, the veteran needs to look to their left and right um, just to say, is it, is it really okay for me to go in here and talk about this yeah. stuff and almost, almost yeah. needing permission. And that's the other thing is I, th- I mean, in some ways I feel like the military gets a bad rap for like all the stigma about behavioral health. Um, but it's not like, you know, at the average dinner party, people are going to be disclosing that like, Oh yeah, I, I just recently started therapy. I'm really struggling with some anxiety. Like, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Yeah. People still tend to, it's still a private thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think one of the things that really changed over the course of time that I've been working with the army is the expectation, at least when bad things happen, like everybody's on board with like, let's make sure we get, you know, somebody in here to talk to these guys. Um, and I don't know if they think we've got a magic wand and, you know, showing up immediately after a traumatic event is going to fix something. Um, but I felt like what I could do more than anything else is start to lay the foundation that like, this is stuff you have to talk about, you know, cause when we would do the group debriefs, a lot of time it was like, all right, like, you know, from your perspective, like, what happened? You know, tell, tell me your story kind of from start to finish. And, and, and then everybody kind of does that. So one, you start to piece the story together because when things feel unfinished or chaotic, you're going to think a lot more about them because you're trying to figure it out, you know, whereas like, well, I know this is what I did, but what was he doing when all that was going on? Or, you know what I mean? So everybody kind of tells their story. So you're, you're trying to create a cohesive narrative, right? It's kind of therapy talk, but trying to create that cohesive narrative. And like I said, setting the expectation because, and the, you know, every time I, if I have to diagnose somebody with PTSD, I'm like, listen, like avoidance is a big chunk of, of the PTSD symptom cluster. Um, it makes sense. You don't want to think about it. You don't want to talk about it because when you do, you don't feel good. <laughs> so, so from the, from the, you know, the 50 yard line, like avoidance makes sense, but if it worked, you wouldn't have any of these other symptoms. <laughs> it's not working out for you too. I mean, even though it's a tool, it's not the most effective tool. 
Exactly. Exactly. So if, if avoidance was successful, you wouldn't be having nightmares. You wouldn't be having intrusive memories. You wouldn't be yelling at your family members all the time. You wouldn't be driving like an asshole, you know, like all that kind of stuff. So, so even though it made sense, you tried it and it didn't work. So now we're going to not avoid, we're going to, you know, you have to talk about some of the stuff that you've been avoiding for a long time. And I think that's a big thing in, uh, in especially in active duty. And, and I noticed this as I retired and I got into the community, I never considered what happened, you know, what's going on after the army, you know, it was theoretical, but it wasn't someplace that I actually do. Um, and, and then it's, we now have the rest of our lives to address maybe what we didn't address in, um, you know, while we were on active duty. And, and so it's good to hear that it's at least starting the ball rolling. Let's start talking about it now. So that 10, 15, and we're talking decades for, for many of the Vietnam veterans before they actually get to that point. So I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is, uh, this has been really fun. Um, I wish that I would have, um, uh, much more time to, you know, I, I say this a lot on all the shows. I say that we could, you know, talk about this all day, but we really, I think could talk about this kind of stuff all day, but it's, it's, and, and it's as much when I started out on my journey as a mental health professional, you were there, you were encouraging me, and I, I even appreciate that. So I, I thank you not just for coming on the show today, uh, but uh, for the encouragement that you've shown me and the service that you give to our soldiers. Uh, I think it's great. Yeah, well, thank you. And I'm, I'm so happy to see people like you who've been there and done that and now you know, getting the qualifications, getting the degrees and, and doing the work. Uh, it's such a service to our veteran community. And, uh, and I'm glad, you know, we live in the same town and we're going to continue to cross paths here and there. And we'll have to get a beer sometime and really tell some good stories. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, uh, I don't know if, I mean, you are still working for uh, the DOD or the Department of the Army. Um, but do you have social media that you can share if anybody wants to, I guess, hear more about the, the battling psychologist or anything like that? <laughs> um, I don't have, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a fan page. No, I don't have any like real public stuff. Um, people are welcome to email me, you know, just Katie Cop, um, both with K's at gmail.com. And you can put that in the show notes or whatever if anybody wants to reach out. Or um, I know sometimes I've had newer um, active duty providers reach out and I'm happy to share my experiences in any way that I can because no sense in having all these lessons learned and just sitting on them you know absolutely the the library is only as good as the doors that work right <laughs> exactly yep okay well thank you very much I appreciate your time thanks so much you're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV podcast network This was something that I saw very differently between my first deployment in Baghdad in 2006 and my second deployment to Afghanistan in 2009. The military saw that it was better to support the service member as close to the front line as possible, and to be able to do so, they needed clinical mental health providers on the front lines as well. When I said in the episode that Captain Cop was all over the place, she really was. We'd be providing security escort for days, then all of a sudden, at some small combat outpost, there she was. It's encouraging that she talked about laying the groundwork in the service for service members to start addressing some of this stuff after they leave the service. That's what this whole thing is about, helping veterans understand that what they experienced was unique, so their way of addressing it needs to be unique. Sure, what we saw in combat or even in the military in general was significant, but we also have the ability to survive and even thrive if our mindset is in a healthy place. 
couple of weeks ago, I, I announced that I'd be supporting organizations that are looking to spread the word about veteran mental health. I've been talking about the latest Headspace and Timing book, Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy. You can check it out by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash combat vet book. I've had some nonprofits reach out and ask how they could get copies of the book for veterans they're working with, and I decided to donate some free books based on how many I've sold. The first organization we're partnering with is Coder Vets, a 501c3 nonprofit based in St. Louis, Missouri, that helps veterans gain tech skills by offering paid apprenticeship programs and software development. It looks like we're on track to be sending them 10 free copies of the book. If you want me to give more books away, much to my wife's disappointment, then pick up a copy of the book yourself. It's a great way to support veterans in their transition and to let them know that there's nothing wrong with making sure that your headspace and timing is set correctly. And another little teaser. Do you have an Amazon Echo or Echo Dot? I'm not going to say her name and keep talking because I don't want to wake her up if you do. But if you want to get more information about veteran mental health, we've created an Amazon skill that you can include in your daily news and information brief. I'm going to be talking about it next week, but as a sneak peek, you can check it out at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash Alexa. Next week, we're going to be doing some catch up on some projects. I hope to be able to give an update about the Coder Vets book giveaway, announce the book project partner for June, talk more about this Amazon Echo thing, and talk with another friend of the book, blog, and podcast about one of their favorite blog posts. Until then, stay focused and be well. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV Podcast Network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email at Dwayne at VeteranMentalHealth.com. You can find me at Twitter at The Counseling Vet or head on over to Facebook and look for the Change Your POV Squad. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com or ChangeYourPOV.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. The show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, changing hearts and minds. The show about outdoor activities that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods. The show that helps us get going at the beginning of the week, Motivation Monday. And Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. While you're checking out the other shows, drop us a review in iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The reviews really help spread the word about what we're doing. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. If you know of a buddy who's looking for the same info, share it with them so they can find it too. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctod.com. Check it out. Because remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real. Found a piece and lost a soul. Eventually my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones. I've triumphed over enemies, co-created enemies. Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me. R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility. Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability.
gave every shred, every last thread of my identity. Conquer my fragility, eliminate the enemy, deliver me, God, from temptation. Tell me that this life is just a matrix. Need a facelift, back to basics, vision LASIKs. I only feel alive when I hear the bass kick. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.